last weekend at Church on the Rock, and we had a great, great time. I saw your mom, yeah, and um, had a great time. Three services. It took me back a few weeks. <laughs> I thought I was just, I just thought I was letting Saturday night go. They had a Saturday night, but boy, the altar was full, and God blessed, and it was just such a, and I understand, but I'm going to tell you, there's no place like Turning Point. I'd rather be here than anywhere, and I heard that uh, Big Ed did a great job, did a great job, and talked about Jesus' job description. Well, you can't beat that. So let's stand together, and uh, oh, by the way, and I see all of our folks back from Africa. Um, there they are, and I know who they are because the glory is emanating from their face. Good to see you guys. Good to have you back. I know it went well. We're planning our own trip to Haiti. Uh, we're going to be working with uh, Jay Threadgill. and going to take some of our teenagers there and let them experience missions in Haiti. So we send people out all the time. We send a lot of people out in various directions and parts of the world, and it's such a blessing to be able to do that. Amen? To be a sending church. Take the blessing out. Well, you know what we're doing tonight? We're, we're answering questions. You just thought we were done. I still got a stack. And so I'm going to deal with some of them tonight. And I really enjoy this. It makes me dig into the Word in some areas that I may not would have if not for this. So it, it's good to answer these questions and kind of clear the fog out and give us understanding where the Bible is a lot of times under attack. And because there's so much propaganda coming against it, sometimes we need to clear the air. All right? So let's pray together. Father, we thank you tonight in Jesus' name for the power of your word. It's living. It's quick. It's, it's powerful. It's sharper than a sword that is double-edged. It pierces, Lord, to the dividing asunder of our soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it discerns the secret hidden motivations of our heart, and it straightens us out, and we thank you for it. We pray your blessing. We breathe a prayer tonight to say, Lord, answer some of my questions. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll tell your neighbor, I'm, it's better him up there than me. All right. Well, it's summertime. I mean, we're hitting uh, triple digits now. It's, it's July. And a lot of our folks are on vacation and coming and going. We got four of our staff gone this week, vacation. So, anyway, it's good to be with all of you. How many of you would be rather be here than watching TV? Amen. All right, let's, we're going to deal. Now, I'm going to start out with a wing dinger. Matter of fact, I'm going tonight where angels fear to tread. And so, if you get mad at me over these, just, just tough stuff. I don't know what to say. No, go to the Word, because I don't, I don't teach anything that's not in the scriptures. I don't have anything to say if it's not in the scriptures. So, but I am dealing with some pretty controversial stuff tonight. So let's start out with this one. Do you hear all the, I really am glad he's up there and not me. Does God call women to pastor churches? Does God call women to pastor churches? Well, the answer is not according to the Bible. Now, let me just show you what the Word of God says. 
The Word of God is very clear in that God does not call women to this particular office of pastoring. Now, let me give you the key passage. The key passage on the women pastors uh, issue is 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 12, which reads, quote, Let a woman learn quietly with all uh, submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Now, please don't misunderstand. Paul gets a bad rap for this verse. He's not telling women to shut up. He's not saying women don't have anything to say. He's saying in the position of pastor. That's the context of this verse. Now, it it couldn't be more abundantly clear. We just read it. Paul restricts women from having spiritual authority over men. And that's what pastoring requires. I'm exercising authority right now. Let's say there had to be discipline in the church. I would have to exercise authority as the pastor, as a pastor. Okay? He's saying that women are not to exercise spiritual authority over men. It has nothing to do with value, with better than or less than. It has to do with God-given roles. That's simple. Okay? Now let me just elaborate here. A pastor's duties are primarily teaching and leading. Uh, It's this shepherding role over men that God, through Paul, restricts to men. Now, keep in mind, this is not Paul's thoughts, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Paul's just the vessel. He's just the funnel through which this truth flows. So a pastor is one of the five ministry offices that you find in Ephesians 4.11 that God calls some people to under the new covenant. I'm called to be a pastor. I've been pastoring since I was 19. I was pastoring when I didn't know I was pastoring. Okay, I was just leading Bible studies twice a week to the same group of people over a number of years. I was functioning as a pastor. I just didn't know it. And God calls some to these special offices. Now, the other four are apostle, prophet, teacher of the Word of God, not a school teacher, teacher of the Word of God, and evangelist. So you've got apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Now, those are offices. Those, that's not just something people do, but that's an office, a God-ordained office that God calls some to. Okay? Now, God calls some men and some women to the offices of prophet. I can show you female prophets in the Bible. To teachers, I can show you teachers and evangelists. But there's two offices you never see the woman called to in the Bible. And that is the office of apostle and pastor. When you see them in the Bible, it's always, if you want to just go Greek for a minute, uh, when you see those titles anywhere in the Bible, it's always with a male ending. Apostolos. Presbyteros. The O-S is a male ending, okay? Now, aside from exercising spiritual authority over men, the reason that God does not call women to the office of apostle is because the apostle functions in all five ministry offices and the pastor is one of them, okay? And so, and so a woman can't be an apostle. I have never met a female apostle in my life. Now, I know there's female pastors out there. 
I'm not criticizing any person. I'm just called to teach the word. So I'm just humbly telling you what is there. And I just can't find a female pastor there. It's, it's, she's not to exercise spiritual authority over the men. But teacher, go. Prophet, evangelist, go. Yeah, Shelly just went and evangelized in, in Africa. I heard she prophesied some. Shelly wasn't out of order. But if she came up to me and said, Pastor Jeff, I feel led to go pastor a church, I'd take her aside. <laughs> Shelly, let's talk. <laughs> and she says, I'd be going crazy if I said that to you. Now, every single pastor mentioned in the New Testament is a man, not a woman. The Word of God clearly teaches that a pastor is the husband of one wife. 1 Timothy 3, 2, quote, a bishop pastor then must be blameless the husband of one what wife titus 1 5 to 6 says ordain elders that's presbyteros pastors in every city as i had appointed thee and if any be blameless the husband of one wife so there you go nowhere do you see the apostle paul who was used of god to be the architect of the local church okay we get all of our understanding of a local church from the revelation that God gave Paul. Very simple. The offices, the, 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 how the gifts are to be used, how they're not to be abused, how things are to be done decently in order, the, the various, all that you read in Corinthians and Ephesians and other places on the local church, God used Paul to be the architect of the local church. So he's real clear on this. He's just real clear. The only verse that I've ever heard people use in an attempt to justify women pastors is Galatians 3.28, which reads this way. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. Now they say, see, so it doesn't matter, a woman can pastor, because there's not male or female. Ah, but that is not what it's saying. This verse is talking about the fact that God is no respecter of persons. Whether you are a male or a female, a Jew or a Gentile, or bond or free, this verse means that God loves people equally and responds to people's prayers and faith equally. If a woman prays, God hears her just like a man praying. He's just saying nobody has greater value in the presence of God. It has nothing to do with the office of pastor. God doesn't play favorites. He'll save a Jew as readily as he'll save a Gentile. He'll deliver a female as readily as he'll deliver a male. It, this verse is not talking about the ministry. So I'm going to leave it there and let the chips fall where they may. Now, I like this one. Are there books missing from the Bible? Are there missing books in the Bible? That's a great question. Now, I think like Dan Brown and the book, The Da Vinci Code, and others like that, and they made it into a movie. I think I never saw it. And I never read the book. I wouldn't waste my money or time on either one. But uh, the contention was and the insinuation was there's lost books from the Bible that, 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 that we need to hear from, that we shouldn't have lost, that we shouldn't be without. There are no lost books of the Bible. I want you to say that with me. There are no lost books of the Bible. If you've got a Bible, hold it up and just say with me, it's complete. It is complete. Okay? Now, uh, there were no books taken out of the Bible or books missing 
from the Bible. Every book that God intended and inspired to be in the Bible is in the Bible you hold in your hand. Now, some claim, for instance, that the Apocrypha is inspired. If you came out of the Catholic Church, then you know exactly what the Apocrypha is because it's included in the Catholic Bible, all right? The word Apocrypha means of questionable authenticity. That's what it means. The authenticity of that Apocrypha is questionable, so that's why it's called the Apocrypha. Now, these are called non-canonical books, meaning they weren't included in the canon, C-A-N-O-N, of Scripture you hold in your hand. Because when the canon of Scriptures, the 66 books of the Bible, old and new, 39 old, 27 new, was accepted by the early Christians, they recognized that these books contained spurious material, and therefore they were not inspired of God. Now, other names for these books are hidden, the hidden books, the Apocrypha, or the Deuterocanonical books. Deuterocanonical. I get an A for saying that. <laughs> All right. These books are also called pseudepigraphal. No wonder. Hey, listen, you know, sometimes we think ourselves into a pretzel. But anyway, I'm just reading it to you. They're, they're called pseudepigraphal somewhere in the world. They're called that. And that means false writings, pseudo. That's where pseudo is there, false writings, to designate them as spurious and unauthentic books of the late centuries B.C. and early centuries A.D. Now, the apocryphal books contain religious folklore. That's what they have. And they've never been considered inspired of God by biblical Christians from the earliest times of the church, all the way back, second, third century, never been considered inspired. The Apocrypha is not included in any Protestant Bible. But as I said, it's in the Roman Catholic Church. It's accepted as the Word of God. The Eastern Orthodox Church, the Armenian and Ethiopian Oriental Orthodox Churches, they accept the Apocrypha. But Protestant churches never have. Okay? None of the church councils that met to decide the authenticity of various books has ever considered the Apocrypha as inspired. It might be interesting reading, but it's not the Word of God. Now, there are many legends and rumors of lost books. and Dan Brown played on that. But there is no truth whatsoever to these stories. There are literally hundreds of re religious books that were written in the same time period as the books of the Bible. And some of these books contain true accounts of things that actually occurred. Like First Maccabees, for example. You're going to get some things that are historically true. Some contain good spiritual teaching. The Wisdom of Solomon is the name of one of the books. Uh, however, these books are not inspired by God. If we read any of these books, the Apocrypha as an example, we have to treat them as fallible historical books, not as the inspired, inerrant Word of God. When I read my Bible, I don't read it like any other book. Okay, Any other book I pick up to read, anything, even if, it, if it's a Christian book, by a real famous Christian author, if it's, you know, uh, commentaries, whatever they are, I, I, I look at them with the possibility that I might run across an error. I don't read the Bible that way. I read the Bible totally trustingly. Because I know it's the Word of God. So I don't read it with, with, with an eye looking for something wrong. 
I read it as my guide for life, and it is inerrant, and it is infallible. Okay? The Gospel of Thomas is another one. The Gospel of Thomas is a forgery written in the 3rd or 4th century A.D., claiming to have been written by the Apostle Thomas, and it wasn't written by Thomas. The early church fathers almost universally rejected the Gospel of Thomas as heretical, and, and on and on. So I could spend a lot more time on this, but I think you get the idea. Amen? Let me just read this last part. There is one God. Can we say that together? There is one God. Now, the Bible has one creator. It is one book. It has one plan of grace recorded from initiation through execution to consummation, from predestination to glorification. The Bible is the story of God redeeming his chosen people for the praise of his glory. And as God's redemptive purposes and plan unfold in Scripture, the recurring themes constantly emphasized are the character of God, the judgment for sin and disobedience, the blessing for faith and obedience, the Lord's Savior and sacrificing for sin, and the coming kingdom and glory. And it is God's intention that we know and understand these five themes because our lives and eternal destinies depend on them. So it's therefore unthinkable that God would allow some of this vital information to be lost in any way. So we've got the whole Bible, whole Word of God, in our grateful hands. Amen? Amen. Well, let me just go to another question now. Why are there so many last names if we all came from Adam and Eve? Now, I read that a few times, and I, I put it down, picked it back up, put it down, picked it down, and I thought, you know what? That's a good question. I'm going to answer that. Because where in the world did you get your last name? I mean, Wickwire? What did that come from? Okay? Let me answer it. Because we did all come from Adam and Eve, all right? We're all of the same blood. Originally, last names were not tied to an entire family and passed down, but they were instead used to describe an individual. Now, I found this really interesting, okay? So, going on. A small village in Great Britain in the early Middle Ages, for an example, might have several men named John, as if we don't. Okay? How many Johns in here? John? See? Raise your hand. You're not ashamed of John. Look, there's a bunch right there. How many Jeffs? There's another Jeff. We got so many Jeffs in this church, we need last names to distinguish. All right, now let me just show you. So you got a small village in Great Britain in the early Middle Ages, okay? Uh, somewhere around 500, 600, 700 um, A.D. And a bunch of them are named John in this village. You can't just walk around saying, hey, John, without having 30 people turn around and look at you, which happens to us in this building during the week with Jeff. So we name one of them Jeffrey. Um, I'm Pastor Jeff, and we've had to distinguish between all the Jeffs. Now, if you're in a town, and back then in the Middle Ages, folks, when you had a town, you were in a little town, you didn't travel. Most people lived and died in their little town. That's hard for us to understand. There were no cars. There was no planes. There was no mass transit. There was nothing. When you, when you were born in a town, you grew up in that little town, you died in that little town, and the rest of the world was a mystery to you. And everybody knew everybody, okay? 
So here in this little town, maybe a population, let's say 2,000, where there's a bunch of people named John, what are you going to do? So they had to start attaching descriptive names to all the different Johns. So, John over there who makes shoes, we call him John the Cobbler, and ended up being John Cobbler. And as time went on, you dropped the R, John Cobble. Or you moved on and went Italian, John Cobbellino. But it all came from Cobbler, from what he did. That other John is the son of Roger, the town's blacksmith, so he might be called John the Smith, son. So you got Smithson. And where do you think all the Smiths came from? Okay? Then there's the John who lives all the way out on the edge of town by a series of grassy knolls. So he might be known as John of the Knolls or John Knolls. This is how last names began. I still want to know how Wickwire happened. But it happened somehow, some way. Now, repeat the process. In thousands of different villages and in thousands of different languages around the world, and you have the development of all the last names. Okay? Hereditary last names come when these descriptors became permanent enough to attach to a family rather than just an individual. So instead of Smith, it was the Smiths. Or Wickwire, it was the Wickwires. Now, this is, of course, a huge oversimplification, but you get the idea. This is how last names happen. So, yes, we all came from Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve but we evolved. Amen? Amen? Not in an evolutionary sense, but names evolved. How many of you like your last name? Wow, we need to have an altar call. <laughs> Let me try that again. How many of you like your last name? How many of you really hate your last name? All right, then we need to pray with you about accepting God's providence over your life. <laughs> All right. Now, here's, here's a hot topic question. Many claim today that a person is born homosexual. Could that be true? Now, I tried dodging this one. I tried two weeks dodging this one because I know that this is a hot topic uh, issue, and our culture is just just obsessed with this issue. Really, it has become an obsession. I never thought I would see the day that it has been this, this issue, this topic. You know, I got to thinking, I've been preaching for over 40 years. Do you know that I never had to do, I never felt the need to do a whole message on this topic of homosexuality until the last few years? I never did. In all those years, I never devoted an entire message to the issue of homosexuality. But now, the topic has been brought up and just put in our face. And it's like, okay, the church has got to answer. Are you with me? Now, if our Bible was silent on it, I wouldn't answer it. I would just say, I don't know. Or I can't speak authoritatively because the Bible doesn't speak about it. But our Bible is abundantly open about this topic and very, very clear. So, Let's dive in. Our culture is being inundated with this notion. I got to thinking, Lady Gaga, who I don't think I've ever heard two minutes of. I know the name, but that's it. I've seen her. And, it, you know, that, that's, a, that's a, an experience. But 
she had a mega hit song. You know, God loves her. I'm not running her down. I was freaky when I was lost. I was really freaky. So, you know, people who love the Lord are called Jesus freaks. But here's the real truth. Jesus turns freaks into people. Now, having said that, but she had a mega hit song. I do know this, and it was called Born This Way. It sold millions of copies, and it affirmed what many people believe, that homosexuality is hardwired, that you're born that way. Now, in fact, people think that is as self-evident as saying the earth revolves around the sun. If you don't believe that homosexuality is a, an inbred, genetic, I'm born this way thing, then you're in the dark ages as far as our culture is concerned. You're out of it. As a matter of fact, we're told that no rational person rejects this idea. That's what we're told. The only holdouts are either ignorant of science, homophobic, or bigots. And when they say bigots, they mean us, Christians. But let me just, let me just be truthful with you tonight, totally truthful tonight. And this is going out over 96 radio stations, and I'm very aware of that. I wish it could go out over 400 radio stations, because let me answer it. Science has never, ever confirmed this belief that homosexuality is genetic, biological, or that anyone is born this way. Science has never confirmed it. Yet we're told that it's a scientific fact, just like we're told evolution is. No gay gene has ever been found. Now, before I even go further, I want to tell you, I love all people. I'm not slamming anybody. We're all sinners saved by grace. We all have bondages, shortcomings, flaws. We stumble. We make many mistakes. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we would all be out there headed straight for hell. I'm not singling anybody out. I feel like I've been singled out. That I must believe this, or I'm a bigot, or a homophobe, or ignorant, or stupid, or my IQ is somewhere around room temperature. And so I want to answer it because it has come to me, or I wouldn't be touching this subject. Okay, so it's now uncommon for scientists to think that homosexuality is solely genetic, and I can prove it. I'm going to prove it. Scientists now know I can't prove that it's a genetic issue. Perhaps the most powerful line of evidence is found in twin studies. Now, I don't mean two different studies, but I mean the studies of twins. Now, follow me, because this is logic. Since the Word of God has been rejected on this, let's deal with logic. Since identical twins have identical genetics, it would follow that if one twin was homosexual, the other would also have to be homosexual 100% of the time. Because 100% of the time they have the same genes. Following me? But they have found that both twins, when they have studied twins, are homosexual in less than 15% of the cases. Now let's move along for a minute. Not only is the genetic correlation or effect extremely low, but it also accounts for shared 
environmental factors. In other words, even saying that the genetic contribution to homosexuality is 15% is not accurate because identical twins are usually raised together and share a similar environment. Okay? So even if 15% of twins both wound up homosexual doesn't mean that it was because of genetic wiring because they were raised in the same home environment. So you've got to, you've got to refuse to look at environmental factors if you're going to say that 15% of homosexual twins are that way because of genetics. You're having to close your eyes to the environmental factor. In order to isolate the contribution of, gen of genetics, one would have to study identical twins raised apart. That way you eliminate the effect of their environment. Now, it was also speculated that homosexuality had a biological basis. But research that correlates brain anatomy and physiology with homosexual behavior does not prove causation. Now, let me move on. In other words... Even if the brains of homosexuals have structural differences from those of heterosexuals, that might suggest their behavior changes their brain, not the other way around. Now, before you go, well, that sounds kooky to me. Listen, we know for a fact that psychopaths' brains are different, differently structured, look differently than normal brains. Psychopaths, alcoholics, drug addicts, their brains have been altered, okay? So it is, it is not beyond science to say that the brain of, say, somebody in homosexuality or drug addiction or whatever look a little bit different than others. And here's why. This is possible due to neuroplasticity. Now, when I look at this, I look at the miracle of God and the way he made you and me. Neuroplasticity is the lifelong ability of the brain to change in response to the environment, behavior, brain injury, or even acquiring knowledge. Here's what this is saying. That if you go into a certain behavior, it can change the way your brain is structured. Or the way it looks. Why do you think they take these, these high-level geniuses and look at their brains and they see that their brains don't look the same as others? They studied so much. They thought so much. And their brains adapt. I've got a friend that had a major stroke. He had a major stroke. And he can show you his brain x-ray. And you see all this dark gray matter. And then all of a sudden you see this huge slice of the pie that is white and dead from the stroke. But you know what his brain did? It totally, listen, when he had this stroke, he couldn't talk, he couldn't write, he, couldn't, he could not walk, he was paralyzed on the left side of his body. It took him down to the ground. He was, he, he was a pastor of a large church and he had this stroke. Now, when that big, a fifth of his brain is dead, a fifth of it. You look at it and you just go, wow, how are you walking? You know how? Because the brain, neuroplasticity, it rewired itself. 
It rewired itself. That's the miracle of how God made us. Now he walks, talks, preaches. He, he, let, he called me on the way to church tonight. Where are you going? Church. Oh, that's right. It's Wednesday night. But now, I'm saying our brains have the ability to adapt. And so the whole point is this, is that there's no proof, not genetic or biological, that anybody is born this way. For example, on neuroplasticity, blind people's brains have a different neurologic structure because reading Braille using fingers is a different behavior than using eyes to read. So their brains have a different neurologic structure, which happened over time. The change in the look of their brain was caused by behavior. So what came first, the chicken or the egg? What comes first is the behavior. Then the brain is changed. You didn't know you were coming to science class, did you? Let me just go on, because this is very scientific. And since, since a lot of our culture won't listen to the Bible, I'm just talking logic here. I'm showing you what science has discovered. A second problem with the born that way theory is that even if true, it wouldn't prove the homosexual behavior is moral. Now follow me a minute. Consider that scientific research has discovered genes they believe contribute to alcoholism, unfaithfulness, violence, and even many diseases. We've been told about all of those. I've read articles on all of those. Oh, we have discovered the alcoholic gene. We, we've discovered a, a genetic predisposition to alcoholism or drug addiction or unfaithfulness or violence or psychopathy or any of these things. We have found genetic predisposition to it. you got to be so careful with that. Because that takes away all personal responsibility. See, this is what's happening in our culture. I do what I do because I can't help it because I'm born this way. I do what I do. I cannot help what I do. I kill people. I'm a serial killer because I was born with a genetic predisposition for serial killing. Does that mean that you ought to go be a serial killer? Or, or, or what if both your parents were alcoholics, your grandparents were alcoholics, and you're told, well, you've got a genetic predisposition to alcoholism. Now, follow me, church. Does that mean, then, that you have every right in the world to go and drink yourself to death? Does that mean you should never fight it? Come on, talk to me. Does that mean you should not fight it? Of course not. Of course not. Does that mean that you have a God-given right, then, to go be a drunk? No. Or, he, or, or God would not tell us, don't drink to drunkenness. That's for everybody. He didn't say, except you alcoholics with a predisposition for it. Did he say that? I'm, I'm just trying to make a point. Did he? See, if you're not careful, all, all the way back to Flip Wilson, devil made me do it. Okay, he was blaming it on the devil. But here's what we do. Forget the devil because we don't believe in the devil in our secular culture. But we do believe in genes. So, we, so we've got a genetic makeup for everything God calls a sin. And because we've got the genetic predisposition, we are justified in doing it. Are we to believe that because there's a genetic contribution to these behaviors, or even if they were genetically determined, 
that they should be regarded as morally appropriate? No. I, I want to be real careful here where I go. How many of you can say, I've got, I definitely have a genetic predisposition, predisposition to sex? Let me put it another way. How many of you are here because of sex? Okay. And how many of you can say, you know, sex was a good idea? How many of you can say that it's in your genes to desire it? Come on, get your halo off your head. Now, true. So can we not all say, I'm born this way? But does that mean because you have a genetic predisposition to sex that you ought to be able to go do it anytime, anywhere, any way you want? No. God puts it in a context. Okay? I think you see where I'm going with this. I can't believe I'm having to go here. 30 years ago, I would have told you I'd never preach that way. But here's our culture. Now, so just because, even, let's just give it that, that, all right, you have a genetic predisposition to homosexuality. That does not mean it's right. Any more than it's right if I'm in a moment of fury and I want to kill somebody. Just because you feel it doesn't make it right. So proving homosexual behavior is appropriate by appealing to a genetic determinant is wrong. This mistaken thinking is known as the naturalistic fallacy. You can't get an ought from an is. I am, so I ought. Even if homosexuality is natural, it doesn't prove it ought to be. All of our desires, folks, are to be submitted to the authority of Scripture. All of them. All of them. I mean, go into any, any high school, uh, go to a senior class. How many of you kids can say, my hormones are raging? They'll all raise their hand. Now say, all right, because your hormones are raging, does that mean you have the right to go yield to it today? Give vent to it today? No. How many of you seniors can say to me, I'm definitely born this way? They would all raise their hand. Just because you're born that way doesn't mean you've got a God-given right to yield to it unless it's in God's context. Scientists who are attempting to prove homosexuality is inborn agree with what I'm telling you. A third problem stems from the mere existence of the ex-gay community. If homosexuality is, as pro-gay advocates tell us, as inescapable as eye color, then how do they explain former homosexuals? If I am hardwired to be homosexual then no way I get out of it. No way I escape it. No way I can deny it. No way I can change. 
then what do you do with all the former homosexuals? Eye color is genetic. Something that one is born with and can't change. But sexual orientation is fluid, as evidenced by the changed lives of thousands of men and women. Okay? You following me? There are women who have had long-term lesbian relationships with other women and then change and become attracted to men. There are also men who have had same-sex attraction since puberty, spent a decade in gay relationships, and then developed attractions to the opposite sex. We're having one New Year's Eve. We're having a great New Year's Eve service with Dennis Jernigan. We're bringing Dennis Jernigan. And we're going we're gonna to ring in the New Year with some heavy praise and worship. But he's totally delivered from that lifestyle. The fact that even one person has changed is evidence that homosexuality isn't hardwired. But there are thousands of individuals who share this experience as significant counter evidence against the born that way theory. I know some of these people personally. I do. And they can't all be lying to me about their life. They're not. Oh, I go from one to another one. I'm done with that question. Here's the next one. How can God send people to hell that never heard the gospel? I want to end with this one. How many of you have ever wondered that? How can God, if I never heard the gospel, then how can God send me to hell? All these poor, innocent people over in Africa and elsewhere, how can God send them to hell if they never hear the gospel? Let me answer that. Let's begin by reading Romans 1.20. Oh, by the way, Romans 1 is all about homosexuality being a choice and not a way that you're born. Now, Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So read this last part with me. So that they are without excuse. Who's the they? Those who die lost. Those who die having never heard the gospel. Okay? They are without excuse. Now, notice that Paul says, they, the lost, are without excuse. Not one person facing the judgment bar of God will have a legitimate excuse for their lost condition. Not one. Since the creation of the world, he declares God has made his invisible attributes visible. The particular attributes that, can be, uh, that we can perceive without special revelation through our natural senses are God's eternal power and His divine nature. We can see that just with our brains without natural or without supernatural divine illumination. We can see it. God's eternal power refers to His never-failing omnipotence, which is reflected in the awesome creation which that power both brought into being and sustains. God's natural revelation of himself is not obscure or selective or observable only by a few highly brilliant people who are especially gifted. God's creation and the evidence of his reality can be seen by the simplest of us. His revelation of himself through creation is seen by everybody being understood through what has been made. All right, we've got to have that in our minds now. Now, even in the most ancient of times, 
long before the telescope and microscope were invented. The greatness of God was evident, both in the vastness and in the tiny intricacies of nature. Men could look at the stars, and they did, and discover the fixed order of their orbits, and they did. Galileo, uh, all of those great scientists of the past, they looked at the stars and they said, God did this. Newton, brilliant scientist, believed in God, was a Christian. They could observe a small seed reproduce itself into a giant tree, (laughs) exactly like the one from which it came. They could see the marvelous cycles of the seasons, the rain and the snow. They witnessed the marvel of human birth and the glory of the sunrise and sunset. Even without the special revelation David had, they could see that, quote, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. Everybody can see that. That's obvious. It's plain. So men are judged and sent to hell, not because they don't live up to the light evidenced in the universe, but because ultimately that rejection leads them to reject Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Listen closely to what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit that he would soon send in power onto the earth. John 16, 8 through 9 here. Jesus said, quote, he, Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the who? The whole world. Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would at one time or another in the lives of all the citizens of this world convict them of their sinfulness, of what real righteousness is, and that there is an approaching day of judgment. I believe this with all my heart. I don't believe a man or a woman dies before God has at least once by the Holy Spirit come to them and said, you see what God has made. And if they respond to that conviction, if they respond to that touch, then here's what I firmly believe. God will somehow, some way, someday, he will move heaven and earth to get the gospel to them, even if it's by an angel, which is happening to Muslims all over the world. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict, which means convince, persuade, convince, convict the world that they're in sin and they're headed to a judgment and that they need a Savior. This happened to my dad. I witnessed to my dad for decades. My dad was a, 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 um, an intellectual. My dad had a genius IQ. He was in the, uh, the Mensa Genius Club in America. He thought, he read voluminously. He was a thinker. And he resisted the gospel as I would share it with him year after year, decade after decade. Then one day, out of the blue, I'm sitting there, I'll never forget. I'm sitting at the table eating shredded wheat. I'll never forget it. Sitting at the table. He he had been out back. He walks in. And out of the blue, my dad says to me, you know, Jeff, there is no way that out there could be an accident. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I was watching this squirrel in the tree. And he said, it just struck me that no way that just happened. (laughs) Who did that, that it just struck him? The Holy Spirit will convict 
of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. So I believe my dad responded to that light, and he came in and told me what he had seen. So he had natural, he had natural revelation. He just looked in his mind and said, this didn't just happen. And what did God do? He made sure that the gospel was sitting at the table eating shredded wheat. And so I, <laughs> so, so I uh, shared the gospel with him again, and I was able to pray with my dad and lead him to Christ a few years before he died. And I know he's in heaven now. I know he is. So nobody is going to have an excuse when they meet God. No one. The Holy Spirit's ministry often begins with a person experiencing the natural revelation of God's existence by what he or she has seen in nature. I believe with all of my heart, I'm going to say it again, that if a person lives up to the light of this natural revelation, God will bring the gospel to him or her by one means or another, even if it must be by an angel. He will get it to them. In his sovereign, predetermined grace, he reaches out to sinful mankind. As I live, says the Lord through Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. So does God send to hell people who have never heard and had no chance? Never. Never. He is a just God. Let's stand together. Say with me, we, start, we covered a lot tonight. Yeah, we did, didn't we? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you right now for your presence here. And we pray that, Lord, as we've learned these truths, you will help us to carry them out into this lost and dying world, not in a harsh, religious, judgmental way, but carry the truth in love, but firmly. And we pray for our country. So lost, Lord, so desperately lost in a cesspool of sin. A cesspool of garbage. Lord, by your grace, we stand here clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But Lord, we would that the whole country would experience a fresh move of God. We pray that in your mercy, you would help it to be so. You would breathe over this land again. Can we lift our hands to the Lord tonight? And I want you to pray with me and say, Lord, help me to be strong to stand for you unashamed and to speak the truth in love but speak the truth nevertheless in Jesus name